Hello and welcome to the podcast. You're listening to Be Uncluttered. I'm Rebecca Mazzino and with me is Tara Tuttle and together we are going to help you on your journey to a life free of clutter. Hi and welcome to the show. Today I am bringing you an interview that might just be the catalyst for changing the way you make decisions every day and also help align you with achieving your highest purpose in life. That sounds like a pretty tall order, but I think I've got just the guy for it. Now, if I was to give you the full version of Greg's bio as an introduction, we would have no time left for the actual interview. So without wanting to diminish his extensive list of accolades and achievements, I will condense it to just the essential. He is a father of four, a husband, a New York Times bestselling author, the CEO of McEwen Incorporated, which has worked with many of the biggest companies on the planet, blogger for Harvard Business Review, renowned public speaker, educator, social activist, and has just added podcaster to that list. Welcome to the show, Greg McEwen. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. So, Greg, let's jump into it. Let's start talking about um, your best-selling book, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. So I first stumbled onto this book as a way to increase my productivity at work. I think I found it in the business section of my local bookstore and I expected it might be the magical unicorn that I'd been looking for to teach me how to make more time and get more done. But what I actually found uh, was a philosophy which I, I ended up applying to my entire life. And without getting too gushy and Believe me, I can get pretty gushy when I talk about this book. It it changed me. This book honestly changed me and it changed the lens through which I view the world and honestly helped me to simplify my life. So, Greg, for people not aware, can you talk us through the basics? Give us Essentialism 101. What What is it? What does it mean to be an essentialist? An essentialist is someone who sees their life through a lens, just as you were saying, and the lens is what is essential. You know, it's the appreciation that only a few things really matter and the rest of it is non-essential. The rest of it is noise. And so uh, the, the, the goal of an essentialist is to identify what matters, eliminate the things that don't, and then to build a system that protects and nurtures those few things that are so vitally important. Uh, you know, that's what an essentialist is. If I was to use a metaphor, it's like, um, well, it's like doing what a, a closet uh, you know, organizer would do for the stuff of your life, uh, but doing it for your life. So you're saying, is this the very best use of me? It's a bit like Marie Kondo, does it spark joy? If it doesn't, she says, well, you know, at least consider letting it go. And similarly in life, if this isn't the highest and best use of me, we question it. Uh, we, we negotiate about it. We eliminate it so that in the end, we're left with just those few things that, uh, that allow us to make the best and highest contribution that we can make. That's what it means to be an essentialist. And I love with the the subtitle of the book, it's a disciplined pursuit of less because I feel like it really is a discipline. It's not something that we just flick a switch and it happens. It's We have to practice it. It's almost like um, muscle memory. We have to work out, like you said, a system 
to make sure it happens and then keep working on it. It's this constant um, effort and energy that's required, but the output is definitely worth it. Yes, the, the contrast that I'm trying to bring is the difference between what Jim Corns calls the undisciplined pursuit of more, where you're saying yes to everyone and everything without really thinking about it, on the one hand, and on the other now, this disciplined pursuit of less but better, where you're trying to do the right things for the right reasons at the right time. And so it is a completely different uh, approach to life. Uh, You're shifting, first of all, mostly a mindset. And then upon that change, you start to change your behaviors and your systems. The mindset's a bit like uh, waking up and discovering your whole life you haven't been in a coal mine, where you know it's about getting as much of this stuff done as possible. Point, take the coal from point A to point B. You suddenly realize the whole time it's been a diamond mine. A few things are disproportionately valuable, uh, the vital few, and the rest is just the trivial many. No matter how many other people say it matters, no matter how many other people are busy doing it, uh, you know, our job is to see through all of that and do those things that will matter over a long, long period of time. So I'm curious then about where this came from for you, because when I entered the workforce, or probably even more generally adulthood, I thought success whatever success looked like to me at that that point, whatever I thought it was, would come to me if I could be all things for all people. It was, I think for me, it was like that elusive pot of gold at the end of the all doing rainbow. Like Mm -hmm. sometimes I felt like I was really close. If I could only have an extra hour in the day or a better system for my emails, then I'd get there. But I, I I never made it. It was the, the whole concept of success via doing more was a complete illusion. So were you just born with this innate understanding of essentialism or did you develop the concept over time? How did it come to you? I think it came to me the way that, uh, that, that the transformation of essentialism comes in a way to everybody, which is that it, it happens bit by bit, uh, a little at a time until there is a tipping point and you discover, my goodness, this, this is not the way to do mm-hmm. it. <laughs> and so my tipping point moment, or one of them, was when uh, I got an email from uh, my manager at the time that said uh, Friday between 1 and 2 would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby because I need you to be at this client meeting. Um, I mean, my wife was expecting, otherwise that's an even weirder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but we, you know, as it turns out, Friday morning, uh, we're in the hospital. Our daughter's just been born in the middle of the night and I'm feeling torn. How can I keep everybody happy? If I can do it all, everyone will, will, will you know, win. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just as you're saying, uh, you know, non-essentialism does not do what it says on the packaging. And so I went to the client meeting, to my shame, and uh, afterwards I remember my manager saying, look, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. Um, and the look on their faces didn't evince that sort of confidence, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But even if they had, it's clear 
that I made a fool's bargain in trying to just do it all uh, and, and in violating something more important, something less important. What I learned from that was if you don't prioritize your life, uh, someone else will. And, and that sparked a journey to really understand better why it is people do what they do. Uh, and, and, and this eventually got a name and it was essentialism. Uh, and I found that I was not alone in getting to a point in life where you feel you're, you feel you are stretched too thin at work or at home perpetually. You feel busy, but not necessarily productive. You feel like your day is being hijacked by other people's agenda for you. What I found, in fact, is that this had become a norm for many, many people. So much so, it had become a default way of living. And so one of the ways I think about being an essentialist is that it's about making decisions by design, not by default. And that's sort of the journey that, uh, that led to uh, the discovery, writing of, uh, and publishing of essentialism. So quick diversion, sidewards. We'll get back to the tricky stuff in a minute, but I can only fathom the energy um, and the research that you poured into this book. Did you know when you were writing it you were onto something really, you know, revolutionary, something incredibly insightful that would kind of spark this movement? Did you have an, an appreciation of how big this might be or become? I, I found that... I have found that essentialism is more countercultural than I realized when I was writing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew it was different to what was being done uh, currently uh, at the time of writing and publication. But what I found is that the, the norms of non-essentialism have that the forces behind it in some ways have accelerated in the years since which means that essentialism has the power of relevancy. Uh, you know, each day that goes by, it, it becomes more relevant. The pain it is addressing becomes more acute. People go from thinking about uh, the, the challenges I was identifying as being, oh, yeah, that's a good point, that's a, that's a fair enough problem, to like, I, I actually have got to find a solution, you know, right now, because the path I'm on is unsustainable. Uh, and so. I, I think that I, I knew that we're, we're tapping into a, a pain that made it relevant, but uh, I have been surprised and humbled and delighted to, to find that it's had this, uh, this global interest and, and people being able to say, yeah, this names something, gives language for the pain I'm in and also a way out of that pain. I think... I think the language thing is really key because I I know for me there were aspects of my life that I was trying to simplify and slow and I couldn't articulate to people that would question me about, you know, my processes or the way I wanted to structure my business or my home life and even using the word important didn't carry enough weight. I could, when I said, oh, you know, I think, um, you know, I want to be, 
have a job where I work from home because I want to be available for my kids. I think not just emotionally, but physically available if they need me. And hopefully they don't, but if I'm here and I was like, it's, that's important to me, but important didn't seem to carry enough punch because, you know, you can put a little exclamation mark on an email and that makes it important. It was important is so overused. I was like, I need a word. I need something to validate and articulate how critical this part of my life is and why I want to design it that way. And I think for me, essentialism um, as a concept, but even the language you use, it's like, yes, okay, this is what I'm trying to say. This gives me a way of expressing why I'm making the decisions I'm making because they're essential, because they're nine out of tens, not two out of tens, you know, that kind of thing. So I think I think you did a amazing favour for a lot of us that were struggling with the with the words to use when trying to convey, you know, the way we were trying to live. So, um, so thank you for that. Well, what, what you're saying, I think, is that you is that you felt already desired to make a certain shift that, mm-hmm. but you didn't have language to articulate what was wrong with the one, the way, the lifestyle you were in, or in mm-hmm. the, the language for what you were trying to get to. And mm-hmm. that's a, it's such a non-trivial problem because if you can't put something into language, then you can't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And if you can't talk about it, then you can't change it. And so in some ways, I really do think that essentialism's primary contribution is the introduction of this language. That so people can start talking about it with their with their spouse, with their children, with their boss, with their team, with their customers, even. So you start to say, look, it's not that that thing isn't good. It's not even that it's not important. It's that I have more things that are good or important than I can possibly do in the time I have. And and not by a factor of like, oh, I need an extra hour a day. By a factor of sometimes people will say to me, like, I'm 10 times or even 100 times overcommitted to what I could reasonably do. So it's like a complete bankruptcy problem. And so if you use the criteria, is it good? That's like being in the closet saying, well, you know, could I ever wear this again? Possibly. <laughs> yeah. And the answer, of course, is yes, of course, you could possibly wear it again. So you say yes to way, way too many things. And then people's closets get, you know, completely overstuffed and overwhelmed. And that's true for our lives as well, other than it's even more of an intense challenge because because people are stuffing things into our closet all day long in our in our life and our lifestyle. Yeah, Uh, we, yeah. we, we stop curating it ourselves, don't we? Yes, and and if we don't curate it at all, it doesn't just stay there. You know, if I leave my closet this morning, and, and it doesn't change over the day, but our lifestyle isn't like that. People text, they tweet, they the companies are trying to grab our attention. They're, they're invested to study this and see how they can make billions of dollars from our attention. Email inboxes full of email. Uh, I mean, all of that uh is is happening and we'll be back to that discussion in just a moment 
If you really appreciate this podcast and get a lot from it, we would love it if you would consider becoming a Patreon supporter. This will help us keep the podcast content coming to you by covering some of our costs and importantly, keep it ad-free. You can find the Become a Patreon button on our website at www.beuncluttered.com.au. We really appreciate your support. Thank you. Right, now. Back to the discussion. Greg, if we were to try and conceptualise an essentialist, if we bumped into one of these creatures on the street, how might we know, we know that they're an essentialist? It, like They look the same as the rest of us humans, uh, but if we could see the thought bubbles above their head, um, what might they be thinking that differs from a non-essentialist? What's their internal dialogue that makes them an essentialist? I think there's two tests in that moment. One is what you would feel with them, which is that they are all here. Wherever they go, an essentialist is all there. Uh, Wherever they go, it's full heart, full mind. So they're present and they have the power of presence. Uh, and, And they can do more in that tiny moment than the next person because they're not taxed by worrying about the past and stressing about the future. They are focused on what's important now. Mm-hmm. And that's tangible. You can feel that difference when you're with someone who's fully listening, who's fully there. There's an intensity. There is a, a, an affirmation that you feel. Mm-hmm. In fact, in fact, it can be, I think, quite life changing when you're with someone who's just fully present. Um, the 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 second question was, what's going on in the inside? If you could if you could read their thoughts, and I think that their internal thoughts are probably probably more similar than the average person, but their response to the challenges of their life is different. So I've sometimes said that I think there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are lost and there are people who know they are lost. Uh And an essentialist sort of knows they're lost. So because they're humble about that, their their disciplined pursuit of what is essential naturally follows. If when I was growing up, my father was not especially uh, quick to admit that he was lost if we were driving around. <laughs> that's how, that's a, a general dad thing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it is, you know, and, and it, I'm sure it would be true for me too, but I'm glad to, to live in a, a, a GPS world. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the thing, that here's the, the, the Zen idea, is that if you're lost while you're driving around and you know you're lost, you're not lost anymore. Mm-hmm. Because you know exactly what to do next. If you admit it that you're lost, you just pull over. You know, even before GPS, hey, you know, here, where am I? I'm trying to get to here. Can you point me in the right direction? I mean, it's, it's you actually know exactly what to do as soon as you admit where you are. And, and so similarly, an essentialist, I don't think they have all the answers. They just admit it quicker. And they say, oh, I'm not sure what to do today. There's so many things. And so instead of just marching forward, reacting to everything in, in the inbox, 
pushing out that awkward feeling of, well, you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> you, you, you don't know where you're going. They admit it early. So they're, they're waking up in the morning, they're thankful to be awake, and then they're saying, okay, well, there's more things than I can possibly do today. Let's take a moment to, to write down the things that I think are important and then make sure they feel right. And they take those few moments to do it because they admit it, because they're humble about it, because they're uh, teachable. I, I think that idea that they take a moment is what really stands out, that they are not just always reacting instinctively. They pause, they ask themselves, okay, what's the trade-off if I do this? then what do, what do I have to give up to do that? You know, it's not, you know, all of the world is a trade-off. What You know, you can't do everything, so what are you not doing when you accept something? And it's that it's that pause that I think, I think that's part of what you feel, that's part of why it's tangible because people don't react instinctively. They're really intentional with their decisions. They own their choices rather than them just being in the in the passenger seat of the car they're driving they they pause they think and then they react or respond and I think when you've been on the receiving end of that you go wow you know like there's power in that this person's not just saying yes to please me and to please everyone they are pausing and going okay is it important to me what I have to give up to be able to say yes to that um those kind of things and I I think that pause is so undervalued i completely agree with that without the pause what you're left with is um this these sort of two extreme options uh you have the polite yes or the rude no Mm -hmm. and given those two options people are going to opt for the polite yes most of the time Uh, even when there's no way they can really fulfill the commitment it's just in the moment they think, oh, okay, well, yeah, I, I, you know, I've got to say yes to the person's eyes and I've got to do it. And, and, and before they know it, they've already committed to another thing that they just adds on to burden and stress and uh, guilt because, of course, they can't really do it. Uh, when you pause, you realize, oh, there's a third alternative. I can, I can ask a question. Uh, I can have a little conversation with someone. Uh, I can even negotiate when I need to. You, you, you just realize, what, what about just pausing and asking somebody, okay, well, thanks for, you've asked me this. What is it you're really trying to accomplish? You don't start with saying no. I'm not arguing that people say no to everyone and everything. That would be a book called Noism. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I am saying pause and, and explore a little with people, or even with yourself, I something I do that's tangible here is is once a month I will make a, a, a projects list. So my wife Anna does the same thing, uh, and we try and look through all the different activities and, and things even that we want to do. So we have a sort of master list of all these different projects, and we're pulling from that and we're trying to carefully pick up those items and say, is this the most important project for this month? And we try and make a, a pretty short list. I mean, certainly not more than maybe seven projects for a, for, for a month. Um, and, and there's some order to this. The, the first 
project will be under protecting the asset. Um, so, and it could be one or two projects under this, but protecting the assets, the most important thing that's your mind, heart, body, and spirit, you, it's you are the asset. Uh, and you start there. So this projects list is inside out prioritization. The first is protecting the asset internally. The second set of you know, projects, uh, the second tier is relationships. I mean, for me, that's specifically, it's family, but our most important relationships. So you're, you're saying, okay, what is it? What are one or two things that I really want to do that will be a blessing to the people that matter most to me this month? And then whatever's left from that, you're then carefully selecting just, you know, one or two, maybe it's more, three uh, projects that are out there, maybe in the business, you know, as an entrepreneur, or maybe in the community, um, in church, wherever, you know, it's, it's out there. And what that gives us for the rest of the month is a quick place to look to, to admit trade-offs. So whether it's someone else requesting something from us or whether it's us coming up with ideas, you know, generating our own uh, possibilities, we can look against something. I literally, I'm staring at mine right now. It's on the wall. And this is every day as I begin my day, I'm, as I'm planning, as I'm admitting, well, I'm pretty, you know, I don't know what's the best thing to do. So much already changed yesterday. I have to get into that place and pause and reflect. I'm drawing upon this list and I'm saying, how do I make progress on this list? And then if other things come up, I say, well, is that more important than what I've already thoughtfully designed and curated here? And most of the time I find it is not more important and it can just wait. It can go on my general list for, for consideration later. And this helps me to keep coming back again and again to work that really matters, uh, that I know is going to make a big contribution. I think that's brilliant. And I think that's a really, I want to say easy. It, it's not easy, but it, it's a good place to start because the mindset of essentialism sounds so appealing, but we, we said earlier that it's a discipline and it can be seriously hard work. It is a shift from the norm. It is countercultural, like you said. So, you know, people want to take away, they want to know what step one is. And, you know, beyond the pause, I guess that taking a moment to um, step out of your life and contemplate your hierarchy or contemplate a handful of things that you would deem as essential and then seeing how the rest of your week and your month aligns with that is probably a really nice, helpful place to start. Would you agree? Yes. If I was going to answer the question exactly though, like where do you start? I'll give people where to start. Okay. Um, every person listening to this uh, can take one minute and no more than a minute um, to have a meeting with themselves each morning. And, and, and if you don't do it in the morning, no big deal. If you forget to do it, no big deal. Do it at any point that you remember it through the day. Uh, and in that meeting, you're just, you're just doing like, um, you know, an asset check. You're just checking your own asset. You're saying, okay, physically, how am I doing physically? Okay, now you get, get some information on that. Okay, how am I doing mentally? 
how's my mind feeling? Okay, next, how is, how's my heart feeling? How am I feeling emotionally? And then finally, how am I in my spirit? And that's it. I just did it. That's the meeting. Mm-hmm. It's as tiny as that. You're asking those simple questions, just like you're meeting somebody else. You know, you, you always say, oh, how are you? Well, that's just, it's just like a how are you with yourself. Um, but it's a, this is a high leverage activity because it starts at the very center of prioritization. Uh, it's in that moment that you start getting insights into, first of all, reality, where you are, but also insights into prioritization. This is the practice where prioritization begins. Uh, and, and from that, I, I don't even say, I'm not even saying, well, in that minute, you have to make a plan for what to do about what you find. No, you just, you're just coming back to this moment, how you are, and, and it has a lot of ramifications because if you don't do this, what happens is that people do what I would describe as outside in prioritization. So I haven't been describing this particularly well, but the, imagine three concentric circles. Mm-hmm. At the center is protecting the asset. Number two is your most important relationships. Number three are the projects out there. What I see non-essentialists doing is they start on the outside and work in. They start with the projects out there. And whatever's left over, they invest in their relationships, which often is pretty short shrift. And so their relationships become more and more strained, exhausted. At the end of the day, they're getting to people that... And then last of all is protecting the assets. So there's almost nothing left for that. So this looks like people, you know, binge watching stuff late at night. It's like a friend of mine said, well, I spend two hours scrolling through Zillow uh, at at midnight instead of going to sleep. This is their attempt at at self-preservation, but what it actually produces is more exhaustion for the next day. Mm. Uh, and the pattern continues more outside in. It's the simplest idea in the world, but if you shift from outside in prioritization to inside out, I'm telling you, everything changes. Because you start to look after yourself, not in any way selfish. What, What a total con that is, that it's selfish to look after, nurture, and protect the asset that is you. What, what I've spent some, I've had some interesting conversations recently with women specifically about this. People who are great at caring, a nurse in the NHS in England, I spent an hour coaching her and she spent her whole life caring for other people. Why does she do that? Well, because she believes that they're valuable, that those people matter. And all the while, she's not investing in herself and protecting herself. Why? Well, because at some deep level, she has not appreciated that she has true, deep value. That she is deserving of, you know, again, not in some selfish way, but just as an actual fact, is valuable. Therefore needs to be treated a certain way. Therefore needs to be, you know, is precious. A precious asset. Well, what? How would you treat a precious asset? Once you do that, you show up differently. You you become a gift to the people in your relationship. 
It's not about what you do for them as much as you're just full of light when they're with you. More is accomplished than you realize just by being whole. And of course, it means you can listen to someone. You can be there for them. You can care about them because you're whole within. And, and these two things also build momentum for being able to make a great contribution to other projects elsewhere. It also gives you the confidence to not just do everything other people are doing, to select carefully, because you internally are intact, your relationships are invested in. So you say, well, I'm not going to rush around trying to solve every problem in the, in the universe. No, I'm going to do the things I came on this earth to do. I'm going to quietly figure out what my best and highest use is. And that's my only obligation out there, is to live my mission and not do everything for everyone. Oh. See, this is this is why I get gushy about this book and the entire essentialism movement. There's there's so much goodness in there. You just so I will say to our listeners, if you want to know more, and there is so much more. There are concepts here we haven't even gone into. Oh, the buffering, love this, the endowment effect. You know what? I might even do another show and introduce people to some of these concepts but I so highly recommend that you go and get yourself a copy of the book and I'm even going to go so far as to suggest you buy it not to borrow it because if you are anything like me you will go back to it you'll keep going back to it and my my copy looks so, so scruffy it's got tabs and tags and notes and scribbles in the paragraphs and underlines, highlighters, written all the way through it because, and there's different things when you go back through, there's different things that you pull out that are relevant to different moments. And even right now when the world is feeling completely out of control, I went through it again and picked up a different rhythm from it and a different message from it that was applicable to to now um, that helped me feel more in control when the world feels out of control. So I think, you know, you, if you're anything like me, your local library won't be impressed <laughs> if you <laughs> hand it back in that state. So I would suggest uh, owning a copy. I have one quick little side question for you, Greg, that I've just been itching to ask, and that your kids are teenagers, right? Or are some of them teenagers? Yes, I have four children aged 11 to 17. So have your kids read this book or do they understand that some of the concepts because I just have this vision that they quote it back to you that they argue that picking up up after themselves is trivial or that tidying their rooms isn't helping to achieve their higher purpose are they are your children at all like that or is that with that just the facetious nature of my own children that I would expect them to do that yes you know I I would say this um in fact I'm just searching for something to share with you. So when I travel, uh, about 80% of the time, I um, have brought a child with me so that we turn the least family-friendly part of my career into something that's positive and invests. Oh, I really like that. Um, how, does it, how does that work for you? Oh, it's been, it's just been wonderful. That's what it's been. Uh, one, because one-on-one -on -one time is quite hard to come by. Um, mm -hmm. 
And so even though we know it matters and we know that it's a different type of in- interaction you have with somebody if you're one-on-one with them, uh, as, a, as a parent, it's easy to go through days, weeks, months, and you've hardly had a minute of one-on-one time with each of your children. Uh, and so you suddenly get, for me, I'm traveling, it might be a, there and back will be two days, but the entire two days you're together. Uh, mm-hmm. And so and so in two days, you're getting more than sometimes you might get in a normal month or more. And so that's a great thing. But I did it primarily at the beginning as an investment in them. But what I've been delighted with is that it's changed the experience of travel for me. It's enriched that immensely. And so instead of just uh, what, whoever cares what restaurant you go to, you're looking for a place that makes a memory. Instead of spending a couple of hours at the hotel uh, that, you, that, that you have before going to the airport, you say, okay, what's, what's the thing to go and see, the thing to experience here, the children's museum, the, uh, you know, the science museum, the, the, you, you're, you're exploring. And so it's actually added many, many memories to me uh, and enriched my life you know, beyond what I was expecting it to do. Now there's a third advantage, which is that they come to the events where I'm teaching essentialism. So they participate in that. So if I'm asking questions, they're, they're just as likely to answer, be involved as anybody else in the room. Uh, and so as it happens, they've now heard essentialism many, many times and not in a preachy way at home, dad's saying this, they're just in the room and they get to, to be a part of it. And I, I don't know that that is why the experience that I'm about to share happened, but I think it's probably a part of the potion. Uh, I was trying to persuade one of my daughters, Eve, to, to read this particular book, like read it all this day. It was a, it was a good book. It was gonna, it's meaningful. Uh, and we didn't have any sort of argument, but she was just pushing back a little bit about it. And so I, I came back into the office. I had a meeting in here and she slips a note under my door. And I'm going to read you the note. She's, uh, she said, I already expressed my unwillingness to read this book, but I'm willing to make a counteroffer. I am not willing to read it all in one day today, but I'd be happy to explore the possibility of reading it in the future over the course of a few weeks. I believe it would be best to wait till the end of my literature assignment. If you would like me to read this book in place of a separate assignment, and over the course of a few weeks, I'm sure that can be made possible. I love that. What have you created? You've got like, <laughs> you've got these, if you fall off the rails of essentialism at any point, these kids are going to pull you back into line. I think that's brilliant. I, I am delighted that she feels empowered to be able to have a conversation to recognize the reality of trade-offs, to not feel that she either has to capitulate and say yes when she knows it, it, it doesn't really work, it can't really fit, or just say, you know, or just say rudely no, and I'm a teenager and she was 14 when she wrote this, uh, and I have to fight back. You know, I don't, I don't, I want there to be this psychological safety to be able to have a conversation. I want her to know that throughout her life, she has the right to have a conversation. Uh, that, that's part of empowerment. And I want it for all of my children, but I especially want it for, uh, for my girls. Yeah. And I, 
I can't imagine that there's a more valuable lesson for any young person going into the workforce than to feel like they have a voice and they have a right to be heard because when you know whenever you're starting out in the workforce you are at the bottom of the tree and you feel like you're in the passenger seat other people make your decisions for you and so if they're growing up thinking not only do I have a voice but I have a right to be heard I have a right to use that voice that's that's phenomenal well done you gold star for parenting it's amazing (laughs) I'm sure the gold star really deserves to go to my wife, Anna, who's creating this nurturing environment, this culture where where they can grow into the principle of essentialism. Uh, because, because what you want, what we want for our children anyway, uh, is that they can be asking the core questions of essentialism from the youngest possible point we, we don't want them to become we don't want to wait at 30 years old and they suddenly go well what what is it i want to do with my life what is it how can i uniquely contribute now that i've been jammed full of everybody else's agenda and ideas for what i should be doing and what i should what success looks like we want them to evolve into that now and there's no reason why they can't and so it is simply now a, a matter of record and look at there's lots of, uh, we have our moments and we have our days to be sure. But, uh, you know, we have now my eldest who's 17 when she was 10 years old. It's a different story and a different note, but she's left a note for us under the door at night. She'd stayed up late brainstorming, literally brainstorming. What is my hundred year contribution? Now, that is what we talk about. Not every day, mm-hmm. I don't know all the time, but it's in the air. And so she was trying to work out at 10 years old, what could I do that would make a difference? What's my essential and unique mission in life? What, and she, I realized, it was a big breakthrough for her. She realized, I want to be a director. Professionally, that's what I'm built to do. And she realized that even since she was like four or five years old, she's had this obsession with, with uh, you know, costumes and, 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 and getting the, the children to act out and to video things and and that has stayed with her all these years. So she graduated high school two years early. She's at community college now, and she's doing media arts. So she's, I mean, she just wouldn't graduate and still for another year normally. And she still wouldn't be expected for years to come to really get serious about what it is she's supposed to be doing. And, and instead, she's had all these years to go on internships, starting at a very young age, go and watch how film studios work, be on on site. I mean, that's just one illustration of what I'm trying to say. Get rid of all this clutter, bit by bit, all of the the burdens of expectation that society places. And schools can be sometimes the worst for this. Uh, you know, you have to do everything everybody is doing. You have to well-round it. You need to be in every the inefficiency. I mean, I'm sorry, but the inefficiency in traditional school is quite breathtaking to me. And, and I, we, we chose in the end to homeschool our children, but we never expected to do that. That just grew slowly over time, realizing, man, what would happen if we could help each of our children early discover their own internal voice and their own sense of uh, unique, highest contribution? And, and this, is, this is continuing. My 14-year-old son uh, wants to be 
a biotech engineer with emphasis in medicine. That is literally true. I'm not making this up. I didn't even know careers like that existed when I was 14. No, I didn't either. I mean, of course. At 14, we aren't even, you know, when people say, oh, what do you want to do? It's like, first of all, don't know. Secondly, I don't get to choose for a long time. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. this question isn't very helpful. I'm not empowered to do anything different. I've just got to work through the system. And, And I'm not saying everyone has should even do what we're doing. I just think you can teach essentialism young. It's a, it, the whole point is empowerment. Uh, the, the, it's, it's inside out. It's where you start to become, you have take responsibility for prioritizing your life. And you do it in small ways, tiny ways. Don't do everything. This, this could be pretty overwhelming, this conversation today. I recognize that. But I think just you start small. There's only one thing you've said that I disagree with. And, uh, and it's all right, because I would have agreed with you a few years ago, mm-hmm. uh, even after I wrote Essentialism. But what you said is, is you know, essentialism is, is, you know, it's hard. And here's what I've learned. I'm going to give you a sneak peek into my most recent research. Do you want this? Is this okay? I would welcome this with open arms. Absolutely. Um, the the so here's what i've learned here's 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 one of the primary lessons if not the lesson i've learned in the six years since essentialism was published i've had this opportunity all over the world to you know a truly precious opportunity to be on a listening tour uh to to listen to people uh to mothers to fathers to uh to entrepreneurs to people in in countries the world over and here's one of the things I've learned. Everybody wants to do what's essential. When it's presented to them, when they recognize the choice, everybody wants it. So it's not a motivation problem. But here's the complication, is that they go about it the hard way. And the implication of that is that they abandon the overwhelming but important work for the trivial but easy work. And that, that can happen multiple times on the same day. It's just, mm-hmm. oh, that's, too, that's important, but that's too much. I mean, it's going to, you know, it's so much easier to check social media. Uh, uh, that, that's, that's, that's important. I, I, I could build that relationship over there, but it's much easier to binge watch my show. Mm-hmm. So what my position is, is that we can find, we can make the most essential work the easiest of the activities in our lives. And if we do that, then we can, we can make a far higher contribution, enjoy the process, and keep doing it sustainably. We just can do it for a long, long time into the future because it's not overwhelming, because it's easy. And, and this really is the, the way, it's the essentialist way of becoming an essentialist. What, what, what I found is that many people try to become an essentialist in a non-essentialist way. They try and do it perfectly now. They try and go big on everything, on every aspect of essentialism. And it just itself becomes overwhelming and they give up before they've barely begun. So I believe that there is a really compassionate, gentle way to 
do what matters. Uh, and, and that's that's we just got to hold on to that and do tiny, small, and simple things and declutter the big, complex stuff uh, that unnecessarily makes it hard. And we've been talking about this the movement towards the essentialist way, and I think there's such traction, there's such momentum. Um, so you have started a podcast recently, which is brilliant. Um, and we mentioned, uh, or, or you and I were talking earlier about that you send out a, a little one minute read newsletter following the podcast episodes, which just kind of bring the, the nuggets of wisdom out of it and help help you act on them. So I feel like there's there's so so much more to this conversation and I know that people will want more. So where do they come, Greg? Where can they find you? Where do you hang out? And and where can we get more of this? If someone's going to do one thing, they should go to essentialism.com and sign up for the newsletter because then they'll be brought into the conversation. They'll know when podcasts come out. They'll know when... Um, you know, it's an online class I've been uh, developing for many years that uh, that I will launch at some point soon. Uh, they'll know about these things. They'll be part of the ongoing conversation. So that's if they're going to do one thing, that's the one thing. Uh, if they want to go beyond that, I would say uh, I would say listen to and subscribe to the podcast, which they can also do from essentialism.com. Uh, if they want to do something beyond that, then uh, then I'm active uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, on Instagram and on uh, on Twitter. So, you know, whatever your platform of choice is, uh, you know, they can they can find it at Gregory McEwen uh, Twitter and on LinkedIn. It's just under my name, and uh, on, on Instagram, it's also at Gregory McEwen. So, uh, these are, these are the places that we can carry on the conversation. Brilliant, and I will put links to all of Greg's uh, socials, his handles, his podcast the book uh, that will all be in our show notes on the website so go check that out thank you so much for joining us this week greg and uh and let's hope this conversation continues it's been a real pleasure thank you thanks for joining us we'd love it if you'd leave a review or tell all your friends about us so that they too can be uncluttered if you'd like to connect with us you can find us beuncluttered.com.au or on social media or on our own websites at clearspace.net.au and basklifecoaching.com.au